Integrated Science of the Absolute Epilogue, Chapter Number Six, Pradhana and Prakriti. Both the terms Pradhana and Prakriti have the prefix pra, meaning more so. When they are interpreted as prakarsha, the element of splendor or wonder is added. Prakarshena means in a wonderful manner. The two suffixes are meant to indicate a reciprocity between their respective operations within the creative functioning of Maya. The radical krit means overt activity or doing, while dhana means to contain or hold together in the manner of a receptacle holding the dispersing peripheral specificatory tendencies. We have to place this latter principle of decentralization at the extreme vertical negative point of the ontological or existent pole in the scheme so far developed. Manifestation negatively commences at this pole as seen in the verses just quoted from the Bhagavad Gita where it is stated that the beginning is unmanifested, avyakta. The Vaisheshika doctrine of ultimate atoms, Paramanu, can also be consistently fitted into this prime ontological context, where everything is contained in nascent form, referred to by Kanada as Adrishta, unseen. This pole is also suggestive of the cup, containing the essential materials used in Vedic sacrifices. It is a kind of receptacle where divergent tendencies meet together to fuse into a unique unity. The inverted cup already mentioned is structurally its counterpart on the plus side of the vertical axis. Having now fixed the position of the pradhana at the negative extreme limit as the ontological source of maya, and also revealing this structural paradox at the core of the absolute, it is easier for us to fix the implications of prakriti. We have evidently to find a place for it at a level in our lower structure where the horizontalizing tendencies operate most strongly. Therefore, prakriti finds its place at the zero point of the vertical correlate. Its function is pluralistic and centrifugal because of its specificatory creative urge expressing itself in the manifold colorful variety of the visible world. Although this variety is endless, it has to presuppose the three nature modalities, trigunas, called sattva, pure, rajas, active, and tamas, dark. Gunas can be schematically represented in terms of the color solid as follows. Sattva belongs to the white tip of the top cone, rajas to the middle red zone where maximum specification prevails, and tamas to the black tip of the inverted bottom cone where ontological necessity again gathers all tendencies together into its own unseen prior state. The red could be thought of as marking the same level as the neutral gray on the vertical parameter. Having explained this much, we now give the rest of the definition of Maya. From the extreme point of negativity in the vertical axis, a reciprocal ascending movement of specificatory tendencies attaining to a maximum horizontalization at the zero point in the center. 
These two reciprocal processes can be viewed in terms of entropy or negentropy or as endosmosis and exmosis where they absorb each other. However, the reciprocity is not yet perfectly equalized because negativity prevails over the positive. At the end of chapter 5, this will be correctly balanced. A double process has to be imaginatively visualized. This is a prerequisite for Atmavidya, the science of the self, as Shankara points out in the Viveka Chudamani, verse 16. Number 7. Orthodoxy and the Revaluation of the Sankhya Philosophy by the Bhagavad Gita. In the second verse of this chapter, the word abhava, non-existence, is found. This term, which is fundamental to the Nyaya Vaisheshika methodology, is also approvingly adopted by Narayana Guru in his commentary on page 462. In its revalued form, the term is meant to clarify the position of the later-day Nyaya Vaisheshika philosophers who include Abhava as a regular Padartha category, together with the six other categories. In Vedanta, the term Prag-Abhava, or anterior non-existence, is used in relation to material substances such as clay, as the Guru Narayana himself does in this verse. Philosophizing with matter as the starting point was repugnant to Socrates, who openly objected to the Hylozoists whom he charged with being interested only in mud and stones and not in the world of the intelligibles. In India, the same content is revealed by Shankara in his Brahmasutra commentary. It is not difficult to discover by carefully reading between the lines how Shankara's philosophy is also tainted with this prejudice. A large part of his commentary contains a rather matter-of-fact polemical denunciation of the Sankhya and Nyaya Vaisheshika approaches. He takes his stand quite rightly on the claim of Shabda Pramana, the validity of the scriptural text. But his way of upholding the a priori and axiomatic method is not altogether scientific. In standing for the notion of the Absolute in all its independence and purity, Shankara never tires of stating again and again his objection to the ontological pradhana of the Sankhyas. He also summarily dismisses the Buddhist philosophy and the Paramanu ultimate atom doctrine of the Vaisheshikas. No credit is given to the ancient rishis, sages like Kapila and Kanada. And even the great Buddha is supposedly unable to counter the arguments of the Vedic lawgiver Manu. The slightest criticism of the Vedic word, even when impossible and contradictory positions are found, is nonetheless not endorsed by Aja Shankara or Ramanuja. The extreme intolerance in the name of orthodoxy unmistakably comes into evidence when the question of caste and Vedic orthodoxy is mentioned. In the Apashudra Dhikarana, section denying Vedic rites, religion, etc. to the proletarian, the spiritual status of the Shudra is discussed. This orthodox attitude denies any right and dignity whatsoever to the common person. It is comparable only to the instances of slave trade and lynching in America, 
and the anti-Semitism of Europe and Hitler before and during the Second World War. This section of the Brahma Sutras is a blot on human nature, and genuine Indian spirituality should not be confused with it. We find a mention of the permissibility of punishing Shudras by killing them if they happen to know the contents of any part of the Vedas. If they innocently happen to hear the Vedas being recited, it is permitted to pour molten lead or wax in their ears. If the Shudra is caught uttering any Vedic passage, he is to have his tongue cut out. Although exceptions to this rule are mentioned and reluctantly approved, using far-fetched and irrelevant arguments, as Max Muller pointed out, this section of the Brahma Sutras, that is 1334 to 38, sufficiently reveals the nature and intensity of the intolerance and exclusiveness of a group of Orthodox Hindus. The claim of Hindu tolerance made by Swami Vivekananda in his famous Chicago address seems very weak when viewed from this particular perspective. That Shankara has no word to say against this in his commentary is rather strange because his position regarding caste is different in the Viveka Churamani, where in verse 297 he compares caste to a rotting corpse. Also in his Upadesha Sahasri, Thousand Advices, in verse 14 and 15, he tells the student it is wrong to think of himself as being a Brahmana. Whenever Narayana Guru met an orthodox pandit claiming to represent Vedanta, invariably the first question he put to him was whether or not there was any justice or kindness in the section of the Brahma Sutras dealing with the status or dignity due to Shudras. We have alluded to this section of the Brahma Sutras at some length merely to show how spirituality can degrade, degenerate into something closed and static. This tendency is evident in Shankara's commentary, where he does not even succeed in covering up his intention of completely destroying all philosophical views different from those of the Brahma Sutras. He never accepts another standpoint, but always clings tenaciously to his own. His conclusion found in 2.2.17 regarding the Vaisheshika philosophy is summed up as follows. Quotation. It thus appears that the atomic doctrine is supposedly by very weak arguments only. It is opposed to those spiritual passages where, which declare the Lord to be the general cause and not accepted by any of the authorities taking their stand on scripture, such as Manu and others. Hence it is to be altogether discarded by high-minded men who have regard for their own spiritual welfare. The only relieving feature of Shankara's commentary is the extremely subtle nature of some of his speculation, revealing delicate fencing tactics directed against a number of imaginary opponents. Unfortunately, many of these opponents are not true representatives of the school of philosophy they are supposed to represent, but instead are mere caricatures. Sometimes they are even degraded to a lower position and presented as unintelligent. This device is used for the glory of Vedism and Vedanta. It appears that this work must have been written for the training of a group of Vedic Brahmanas for use against their more philosophical and spiritual opponents. 
Fortunately, the position of the Brahma Sutras is openly and dynamically revalued by the Bhagavad Gita. The approach of the Bhagavad Gita in contrast to the Brahma Sutras is strikingly different. The Gita is strictly in accordance with scientific norms of thought and completely open and dynamic when it says in chapter 4 verse 11, My very path it is that all men do tread from every possible approach. This open outlook is further evidenced when it says in chapter 9 verse 32 that Shudras, women and even those of sinful origin can attain the supreme goal. The Sankhyan philosophy also receives complete recognition in chapter 18 verse 13. The purpose of the Gita is to revalue and restate both the orthodox and heterodox currents of thought of its time. In chapter 5 verse 4 and 5, the emphasis is on complete equality of status between orthodox and heterodox disciplines. In chapter 9 verses 32 and 33, reference is made to five distinct levels or categories in the context of a philosophical analysis of the Absolute. It is admitted in Vedanta that one and the same Absolute has three distinct aspects called Satyam, Jnanam, Anantam, ontological truth or reality, wisdom and infinity. Here a vertical series of distinct levels is seen passing from the existent through the subsistent and finally to the world of high values. Vedanta accepts Ananda, value of bliss, Atma, the Self, and Brahman, the Absolute, as referring to the same Absolute. Such combined teleological, psychological, and cosmological treatment does not refer to three different Absolutes. Anyone who is not able to understand such a unity is said in the Kathaupanishad to wend from death to death. There is also the Vedantic toleration of different names such as the Supreme, Vasudeva, Hari, Vishnu or Narayana being accepted as referring to the same Absolute. Furthermore, we have to notice the rules of Vedanta are not violated when the cause of the universe is traced to the Absolute or even to its secondary negative derivations or aspects such as Maya. We quite often read in Vedantic literature that Maya is the cause of the universe. Strictly speaking, this should not be permitted if the Brahma Sutras and Shankara's commentary are to be taken literally, because according to them, the cause of the world cannot be anything but Brahman. It must be permissible for a philosopher to interpose any number of intermediate notions considered as immediate or remote sources of the world. For example, in another context, the immediate source of color is the vibrations behind the effect. This does not mean that the overall source of color is denied. The orthodoxy reflected in the Brahma Sutras seems vehemently to insist that only Brahman is the cause of the world. The consensus of the meaning of the text is understood by its author Bhadvarayana as the only reason required to prove the direct and unique causal relation between the phenomenal world and the Absolute. Thus, the Pradhana of the Sankhya philosophy is totally rejected. In strictness, the same objection can be applied to Maya as the cause of the world. Every philosopher in making the transition between the world of appearances and the Absolute 
has to overcome the paradoxical elements between them. At one or another epistemological grade of his discussion, this can be done. For the purposes of necessity, he can use as many intermediate concepts as might be needed for his system in order to bypass all contradiction and resolve paradox. This is permissible as long as he consistently explains his terms. Therefore, it is not necessary for an open-minded and scientific philosopher to object to another's terminology when it is clear and precise. As we have just noted, much latitude already prevails in the matter of naming the absolute and the three or five categories belonging to it, and it is not incorrect for a philosophy like the Sankhya to refer to a term like Pradhana. The term Pradhana only means prime nature as a receptacle similar to the notion found in Plato's Timaeus. In the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 18, verses 13-14, already referred to, there are the five categories called Adhishthanam, basis or pedestal, Karta, actor or doer, Karanam, instrument of action, Cheshta, varied activity, and Devam, the divine principle. To bundle them all together under the term Maya is a much easier task for the non-critically minded metaphysician than to clearly and analytically number these categories. Instead of being a drawback in speculation, such analysis into categories should be welcomed. The Gita is therefore more critical, scientific and methodological in its approach than the Brahma Sutras, which generally take its stand on the evidence found in the scriptures. Doing this only gives certitude to its highly orthodox beliefs. The term Adhishthanam, found in the Gita 1814, is a reference of special importance because it refers to the ontological aspect of the Absolute. When one finds there is reference to the Sankhya philosophy, which is respected here rather than jeered at, the dialectical revaluation undertaken by the Gita is evident. We read in 1320 as follows. In what concerns agency for cause, hetu, and effect, karya, the motivating factor is said to be nature, prakriti. In the matter of the experiencer of pleasure and pain, the motivating factor is spirit, purusha. The duality of prakriti and purusha has been attacked by certain Vedantins on the ground that the two factors involved are comparable to the relation in the example of a lame beggar with sight being carried by a blind beggar with strong legs. Such an example used in this way is not valid. When Prakriti and Purusha are fitted into a fourfold structural context instead of only a twofold one, this is exactly what the Gita revaluation accomplishes when we carefully examine the implications found in the last quoted verse above. They are related to a deep-seated and common basic cause or hetu. These two aspects of the same absolute meet on a common epistemological ground called hetu, admitting neither contradiction nor tautology, but accommodating both the twin aspects structurally, organically, or functionally. Material and psychological factors are seen to be attributes of both. 
Nature is viewed from its effect side first, and deep-seated causes are traced horizontally to their origin in the receptacle of prime matter or pradhana. The reference to the instruments of knowledge as experiencing pleasure and pain is given an intermediate position between the source and its manifestation. Spirit is related in the same material basis, corresponding to the notion of the pradhana, which is more of a potential than a kinetic aspect of nature. The main distinguishing feature of purusha, spirit, is that it has a consciousness capable of appreciating pleasure or pain. The enjoyable bhogya is the horizontal correlate of the vertical enjoyer bhokta. Both belong to the same context of the absolute. The justification for such an interpretation of this verse is found in the frequent references to these two aspects of nature as bhogya and bhokta. Another verse of the Gita 4.32 is also highly suggestive of the same type of structure. The verse reads as follows. Thus many and varied are the sacrifices spread in front of the Absolute, knowing them all as originating in action, thus understanding them you shall gain release. Here sacrifices spread out unmistakably has horizontal reference. <laughs>